Chapter twenty five of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter twenty five. How the King of France held counsel at Maupertuis. The morning of Sunday, the 19th of September, in the year of our Lord, 1356, was cold and fine. A haze which rose from the marshy valley of Mousson covered both camps and set the starving Englishmen shivering, but it cleared slowly away as the sun rose. In the red silken pavilion of the French king, the same which had been viewed by Nigel and Chandos the evening before, a solemn mass was held by the Bishop of Chalon, who prayed for those who were about to die, with little thought in his mind that his own last hour was so near at hand. Then, when communion had been taken by the king and his four young sons, the altar was cleared away, and a great red-covered table placed lengthwise down the tent, round which John might assemble his council and determine how best he should proceed. With the silken roof, rich tapestries of arras round the walls, and eastern rugs beneath the feet, his palace could furnish no fairer chamber. King John, who sat upon the canopied dais at the upper end, was now in the sixth year of his reign, and the thirty-sixth year of his life. He was a short, burly man, ruddy-faced and deep-chested, with dark, kindly eyes, and a most noble bearing. It did not need the blue cloak sewed with silver lilies to mark him as the king. Though his reign had been short, his fame was already widespread over all Europe as a kindly gentleman and a fearless soldier, a fit leader for a chivalrous nation. His elder son, the Duke of Normandy, still hardly more than a boy, stood beside him, his hand upon the king's shoulder, and John half turned from time to time to fondle him. On the right, at the same high dais, was the king's younger brother, the Duke of Orléans, a pale, heavy-featured man with a languid manner and intolerant eyes. On the left was the Duke of Bourbon, sad-faced and absorbed, with that gentle melancholy in his eyes and bearing which comes often with a premonition of death. All these were in their armour, save only for their helmets which lay upon the board before them. Below, grouped around the long red table, was an assembly of the most famous warriors in Europe. At the end nearest the king was the veteran soldier, the Duke of Athens, son of a banished father, and now High Constable of France. On one side of him sat the red-faced and choleric Lord Clermont, with the same blue virgin in gold rays upon his surcoat, which had caused his quarrel with Chandos the night before. On the other was a noble-featured, grizzly-haired soldier, Arnold Dandrigan, who shared with Clermont the honour of being Marshal of France. Next to them sat Lord James of Bourbon, a brave warrior who was afterwards slain by the White Company at Grignier, and beside him a little group of German noblemen, including the Earl of Salzburg and the Earl of Nassau, who had ridden over the frontier with their formidable mercenaries at the bidding of the French king. The ridged armour and the hanging nasals of their bassinets were enough in themselves to tell every soldier that they were from beyond the Rhine. At the other side of the table were a line of proud and warlike lords, Fienne, Châtillon, Nestlé, de Landas, de Beaujeu, with the fierce knight-errant de Chagny, who had planned the surprise of Calais, and Eustace de Ribaumont, who had, upon the same occasion, won the prize of valour from the hands of Edward of England. 
Such were the chiefs to whom the king now turned for assistance and advice. "'You have already heard, my friends,' said he, "'that the Prince of Wales has made no answer to the proposal "'which we sent by the Lord Cardinal of Perigord. "'Certes, this is as it should be, "'and though I have obeyed the call of Holy Church, "'I had no fears that so excellent a prince as Edward of England "'would refuse to meet us in battle. "'I am now of opinion that we should fall upon them at once, "'lest perchance the Cardinal's cross "'should again come betwixt our swords and our enemies.' A buzz of joyful assent arose from the meeting, and even from the attendant men-at-arms who guarded the door. When it had died away, the Duke of Orléans rose in his place beside the king. "'Sire,' said he, "'you speak as we would have you do, and I, for one, am of opinion that the Cardinal of Perigord has been an ill friend of France, for why should we bargain for a part, when we have but to hold out our hand in order to grasp the whole? What need is there for words?' let us spring to horse forthwith and ride over this handful of marauders who have dared to lay waste your fair dominions if one of them go hence save as our prisoner we are the more to blame <laughs> by saint denis brother said the king smiling if words could slay you would have had them upon their backs ere ever we left chartres you are new to war but when you have had experience of a stricken field or two you would know that things must be done with forethought and in order or they may go awry in our father's time we sprang to horse and spurred upon these English at Cressy, and elsewhere, as you advise, but we had little profit from it, and now we are grown wiser. How say you, Seigneur de Ribaumont? You have coasted their lines and observed their countenance. Would you ride down upon them, as my brother has advised, or how would you order the matter? De Ribaumont, a tall, dark-eyed, handsome man, paused ere he answered. Sire, he said at last, I have indeed ridden along their front and down their flanks, in company with Lord Landas and Lord de Beaujeu, who are here at your council to witness what I say. Indeed, sire, it is in my mind that, though the English are few in numbers, yet they are in such a position amongst these hedges and vines, that you would be well advised if you were to leave them alone, for they have no food and must retreat, so that you will be able to follow them and to fight them to better advantage." A murmur of disapproval rose from the company, and the Lord Clermont, Marshal of the Army, sprang to his feet, his face red with anger. "'Eustace! Eustace!' said he. "'I bear in mind the days when you were of great heart and high enterprise. But since King Edward gave you yonder chaplet of pearls, you have ever been backward against the English.' "'My Lord Clermont,' said de Ribaumont sternly, "'it is not for me to brawl at the King's council and in the face of the enemy, but we will go further into this matter at some other time.' Meanwhile, the king has asked me for my advice, and I have given it as best I might. It had been better for your honour, Sir Eustace, had you held your peace, said the Duke of Orléans. Shall we let them slip from our fingers, when we have them here, and are fourfold their number? I know not where we should dwell afterwards, for I am very sure that we should be ashamed to ride back to Paris, or to look our ladies in the eyes again. Indeed, Eustace, you have done very well to say what is in your mind, said the king. "'but I have already said that we shall join battle this morning, "'so that there is no room here for further talk. "'But I would fain have heard from you "'how it would be wisest and best that we attack them.' "'I will advise you, sire, to the best of my power. "'Upon their right is a river with marshes around it, "'and upon their left a great wood, "'so that we can advance only upon the centre. "'Along their front is a thick hedge, "'and behind it I saw the green jerkins of their archers, "'as thick as the sedges by the river.' It is broken by one road, 
where only four horsemen could ride abreast, which leads through the position. It is clear, then, that if we are to drive them back, we must cross the great hedge. And I am very sure that the horses will not face it, with such a storm of arrows beating from behind it. Therefore, it is my counsel that we fight upon foot, as the English did at Cressy, for, indeed, we may find that our horses will be more hindrance than help to us this day. The same thought was in my own mind, sire, said Arnold Andregan, the veteran marshal. At Cressy the bravest had to turn their backs, for what can a man do with a horse which is mad with pain and fear? If we advance upon foot, we are our own masters, and if we stop, the shame is ours. The council is good, said the Duke of Athens, turning his shrewd, wizened face to the king. But one thing only I would add to it. The strength of these people lies in their archers, and if we could throw them into disorder, were it only for a short time, we should win the hedge, else they will shoot so strongly that we must lose many men before we reach it, for indeed we have learned that no armour will keep out their shafts when they are close. Your words, fair sir, are both good and wise, said the king, but I pray you to tell us how you would throw these archers into disorder. I would choose three hundred horsemen, sire, the best and most forward in the army. With these I would ride up the narrow road, and so turn to right and left, falling upon the archers behind the hedge. It may be that the three hundred would suffer sorely, but what are they amongst so great a host, if a road may be cleared for their companions? I would say a word to that, sire, cried the German Count of Nassau. I have come here with my comrades to venture our persons in your quarrel, but we claim the right to fight in our own fashion, and we would count it dishonour to dismount from our steeds out of fear of the arrows of the English. Therefore, with your permission, we will ride to the front, as the Duke of Athens has advised, and so clear a path for the rest of you. This may not be, cried the Lord Clermont angrily. It would be strange indeed if Frenchmen could not be found to clear a path for the army of the King of France. One would think to hear you talk, my Lord Count, that your hardihood was greater than our own. But by our Lady of Rocamador, you will learn before nightfall that it is not so. It is for me, who am Marshal of France, to lead these three hundred, since it is an honourable venture. And I claim the same right for the same reason, said Arnold of Andregan. The German Count struck the table with a mailed fist. Do what you like, said he, but this only I can promise you, that neither I nor any of my German riders will descend from our horses so long as they are able to carry us, for in our country it is only people of no consequence who fight upon their feet. The Lord Clermont was leaning angrily forward with some hot reply when King John intervened. Enough, enough, he said. It is for you to give your opinions and for me to tell you what to do. Lord Clermont, and you, Arnold, you will choose three hundred of the bravest cavaliers in the army, and you will endeavour to break these archers. As to you and your Germans, my Lord Nassau, you will remain on horseback, since you desire it, and you will follow the marshals and support them as best you may. The rest of the army will advance upon foot, in three other divisions, as arranged, yours, Charles, and he patted his son, the Duke of Normandy, affectionately upon the hand. Yours, Philip, he glanced at the Duke of Orléans, and the main battle, which is my own. To you, Geoffrey de Charny, I entrust the Oriflamme this day. But who is this knight, and what does he desire? A young knight, ruddy-bearded and tall, a red griffin upon his surcoat, had appeared in the opening of the tent. His flushed face and dishevelled dress showed that he had come in haste. Sire, said he, I am Robert de Duras, of the household of the Cardinal of Perigord. 
I have told you yesterday all that I have learned of the English camp. This morning I was again admitted to it, and I have seen their wagons moving to the rear. Sire, they are in flight for Bordeaux. For God, I knew it, cried the Duke of Orléans in a voice of fury. Whilst we have been talking, they have slipped through our fingers. Did I not warn you? Be silent, Philip, said the king angrily. But you, sir, have you seen this with your own eyes? With my own eyes, sire, and I have ridden straight from their camp. King John looked at him with a stern gaze. I know not how it accords with your honour to carry such tidings in such fashion, said he, but we cannot choose but to take advantage of it. Fear not, brother Philip, it is in my mind that you will see all that you would wish of the Englishmen before nightfall. Should we fall upon them whilst they cross the ford, it will be to our advantage. Now, fair sirs, I pray you to hasten to your posts, and to carry out all that we have agreed. Advance the oriflamme, Geoffrey, and do you marshal the divisions, Arnold? So may God and Saint-Denis have us in their holy keeping this day. The Prince of Wales stood upon that little knoll where Nigel had halted the day before. Beside him were Chandos, and a tall, sun-burned warrior of middle age, the Gascon Captal de Buch. The three men were all attentively watching the distant French lines, while behind them a column of wagons wound down to the ford of the Muisson. Close in the rear, four knights in full armour, with open visors, sat their horses, and conversed in undertones with each other. A glance at their shields would have given their names to any soldier, for they were all men of fame, who had seen much warfare. At present they were awaiting their orders, for each of them commanded the whole or part of a division of the army. The youth upon the left, dark, slim, and earnest, was William Montacute, Earl of Salisbury, only twenty-eight years of age, and yet a veteran of Crecy. How high he stood in reputation is shown by the fact that the command of the rear, the post of honour in a retreating army, had been given to him by the prince. He was talking to a grizzled, hard-faced man, somewhat over middle age, with lion features and fierce light blue eyes which gleamed as they watched the distant enemy. It was the famous Robert de Ufford, Earl of Suffolk, who had fought without a break from Cadsand onward through the whole Continental War. The other tall soldier, with the silver star gleaming upon his surcoat, was John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, and he listened to the talk of Thomas Beauchamp, a burly, jovial, ruddy nobleman and a tried soldier, who leaned forward and tapped his mailed hand upon the other's steel-clad thigh. They were old battle companions, of the same age and in the very prime of life, with equal fame and equal experience of the wars. Such was the group of famous English soldiers who sat their horses behind the prince and waited for their orders. "'I would that you had laid hands upon him,' said the prince angrily, continuing his conversation with Chandos, "'and yet perchance it was wiser to play this trick and make them think that we are retreating.' "'He has certainly carried the tidings,' said Chandos, with a smile. "'No sooner had the wagon started than I saw him gallop down the edge of the wood.' "'It was well thought of, John,' the prince remarked. "'For it would indeed be great comfort if we could turn their own spy against them. "'Unless they advance upon us, I know not how we can hold out another day, "'for there is not a loaf left in the army. "'And yet if we leave this position, where shall we hope to find such another?' "'They will stoop, fair sir, they will stoop to our lure.' Even now Robert de Duras will be telling them that the wagons are on the move, and they will hasten to overtake us lest we pass the ford. But who is this? Who rides so fast? Here, perchance, may be tidings. A horseman had spurred up to the knoll. He sprang from the saddle and sank on one knee before the prince. How now, my lord Audley? said Edward. 
"'What would you have?' "'Sir,' said the knight, still kneeling with bowed head before his leader, "'I have a boon to ask of you. "'Nay, James, rise. "'Let me hear what I can do.' The famous knight-errant, pattern of chivalry for all time, rose and turned his swarthy face and dark, earnest eyes upon his master. "'Sir,' said he, "'I have ever served most loyally my lord your father and yourself, "'and shall continue to do so as long as I have life.' Dear sir, I must now acquaint you that formerly I made a vow that, if ever I should be in any battle under your command, that I would be foremost or die in the attempt. I beg, therefore, that you will graciously permit me to honourably quit my place among the others, that I may post myself in such wise as to accomplish my vow. The prince smiled, for it was very sure that, vow or no vow, permission or no permission, Lord James Audley would still be in the van. Go, James, said he, shaking his hand and God grant that this day you may shine in valour above all knights. But hark, John, what is that? Chandos cast up his fierce nose, like the eagle which smells slaughter afar. Surely, sir, all is forming, even as we had planned it. From far away there came a thunderous shout, then another, and yet another. See, they are moving, cried the Captal de Buch. All morning they had watched the gleam of the armed squadrons who were drawn up in front of the French camp. Now, whilst a great blare of trumpets was borne to their ears, the distant masses flickered and twinkled in the sunlight. Yes. Yes, they are moving, cried the prince. They are moving, they are moving. Down the line the murmur ran, and then, with a sudden impulse, the archers at the hedge sprang to their feet, and the knights behind them waved their weapons in the air, while one tremendous shout of warlike joy carried their defiance to the approaching enemy. Then there fell such a silence that the pawing of the horses, or the jingle of their harness, struck loud upon the ear, until, amid the hush, there rose a low, deep roar, like the sound of the tide upon the beach, ever growing and deepening as the host of France drew near. End of chapter 25